This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Important verses in the entire Bible, or at least these are the ten verses in the Bible that sets forth the entire story of the Bible. You may recall that Paul's letter to the Ephesians begins in chapter 1 by setting out the true nature of being blessed. Paul teaches us in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 that we are blessed by God the Father, in God the Son, through God the Holy Spirit. And Paul's great benediction in those verses turns to Paul's great intercession in verses 15 to 23. There we see that the Christian's sure and certain hope is in God, that our final inheritance is with God, and our great confidence is is the power of God. And now we come in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 2. So now hear God's word in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word. On December 19th, 2009, in Rockwall, Texas, at Lakeshore Church, I stood before God and man and said two life-changing words, I do. Fortunately for me, Lindsay also uttered those two life-changing words, and I'll leave it to your own imagination to determine who won out on that deal. The reality is that two words changed everything for us on that day. Before I do, we were not a married couple. After I do, we were wed till death do us part. Two words changed everything. And with those two words, we were now in union. Married. The two had become one. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul will show us that two words change everything for everyone in this room. 
Paul describes everyone in this room in verses 1 to 3 as by nature in sin. By nature, we are dead in sin. By nature, we are enslaved in sin. By nature, we are condemned in sin. Those two words, in sin, tell us what we most need to know about ourselves by nature. Yet, in the face of such depravity and despair, Paul gives us the two most important words that we could imagine. The only two words that could possibly provide a way from depravity and despair to righteousness and redemption. But God. But God. In those two words, we hear the sovereign, merciful, loving, gracious initiative and act of God to save His people from their sin. And Paul goes even further in these verses to tell us how God saves His people from their sins. The two words that describe those who have been redeemed by God. In Christ. In Christ. By nature we are in sin. But God, being rich in mercy, with His great love and for His immeasurable grace, makes us in Christ. He saves us. He redeems us in Christ. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, really boil down to this. Everyone is by nature in sin. But God saves His people by grace through faith in Christ. Everyone is by nature in sin. But God saves His people by grace through faith in Christ. Christ. So now let us turn and let us consider the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 as we consider who we all are by nature in sin. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Well, here in these verses, Paul teaches us that by nature, all people are in sin. And specifically, Paul tells us in these three verses, we are all dead in sin, enslaved in sin, and condemned in sin. First, we are dead in sin. Paul says and starts these verses in this section of his letter with the rather stark statement, you were dead in trespasses and sins. This is not a figure of speech. This is a factual statement of every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created in the likeness and the image of God without sin. Yet in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read that God put the couple in the garden and He commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Tragically, we know that in Genesis chapter 3, tempted by Satan, Adam and Eve transgressed the command of God and sinned against God. And so fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, dead in sin. And as the London Confession puts it, Adam and Eve were wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. They were totally depraved. There was not one part of them, soul, mind, or body, unaffected by sin. And so it was for Adam and Eve, and so it is for you and for me. We, as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, are by nature dead in sin. We are not merely weak and wounded. We are not merely sick and sore. No, by nature we have a soul cancer we cannot cure. We are by nature spiritually alienated from the life of God, unable and unwilling to return to the one who has the words of eternal life. We are blind to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit in God's Word. We have no love for God, no sense of our need for Him, no desire for fellowship with Him or His people. In sin, we are as unresponsive to God as a corpse lay unresponsive in a casket. And in fact, our spiritual death leads to the casket. It leads to our physical death. As one pastor put it, on the day Adam and Eve foolishly ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died in a very real sense. It was a slow death, yes, but death and decay entered their bodies and minds, and it was inevitable. From that moment, they would one day become dust again. So it was for Adam and Eve, and so it is for you and for me. Friend, you may not fully understand what I mean when I say you are spiritually dead, but surely you understand what I mean when I say you will physically die. The fear of death grips our conscience, for our souls know that it is appointed unto man to die physically, and then comes judgment of our souls before God. The wages of our sin is death. Not only are we dead in sin, we are enslaved in sin. Enslaved in sin. Paul uses the language here of walk and follow and live in sin to communicate to us there is no true freedom in sin. Rather, there is nothing but bondage to sinful forces like the world and the flesh and the devil. So in verse 2, Paul says that the sinner follows the course of this world. Here by world, Paul means the societal or social values that are opposed to God. We are by nature enslaved to the wicked world, the corrupt culture and the sinful society that is opposed to God, His kingdom and His righteousness. The world is a vanity fair, as John Bunyan put it, characterized by a spirit of self-seeking and self-indulgence, a practical atheism controlled by pursuits of pleasure and profit and position. The world is wicked because it follows after the prince of the power of the air, 
that great slave master that enslaves us in sin, that is even now at work in the sons of disobedience. The devil leads us into sinful temptation. He rules over this evil age. Satan is like the Pharaoh of old, wickedly ruling this world, enslaving God's image bearers under the heavy yoke of sin. And Satan is even now at this moment at work in sinners. Brothers and sisters, do we believe this? Do we understand the spiritual battle that wages in our midst? Satan seeks to cultivate disunity, discontent, and despair in the church, much less the sin of those outside the church. Be on guard, brothers and sisters, for your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How easily we fail to recognize the wicked ways of the world or the sly temptations of Satan because we are enslaved in sin in the passions of our flesh. In the passions of our flesh here, uh, by flesh, Paul means the selfish, self-centered desires of the body and the mind. Paul later expounds on the flesh in chapter 4 when he contrasts the new self and the old self. Paul describes the sinful self, the flesh, as corrupt and deceitful, as lying, angry, a thief, bitter, wrathful, slanderous, malicious, unforgiving, unkind, and hard-hearted. How often our flesh wages war against our souls and is carried along by the siren call of Satan himself in the world. We are by nature enslaved in sin under the bondage of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And therefore, we are condemned in sin. We are condemned in sin. The terrible reality of our sin is that it is fundamentally rebellion against God. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is the author of all things, and as the author, he has authority to command obedience And yet, in sin, we disobey God's good and holy commands. Our rebellion is personal against a personal God. Our rebellion is legal. We have violated his commands. And so God's wrath is also personal. And it's justice. It's just. We are by nature in sin. We are sinners against God. And so personally, bear his wrath. We bear his personal divine reaction against our sin. His settled hostility towards sin. His unwavering resolve to condemn sin. Friend, have you considered the wrath of God? Have you considered that your sin is against an eternal, perfectly righteous, and personal God. And so your condemnation in sin, your punishment is eternal, perfectly righteous, and personal on you. Friend, you cannot, you cannot exhaust the wrath 
of God. You cannot drink the fullness of the cup of His wrath. If you remain in your sin, you will spend eternity under the wrath of Almighty God. But God's fierce judgment is not opposed to God's rich mercy. God's hatred for sin is not incompatible with God's great love for His people. God's dreadful wrath is not inconsistent with God's immeasurable grace. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and condemned in our sin, Paul tells us of the only one who can save us when he penned the two most important words in all the world in verse 4, but God. But God. Here Paul teaches that God's rich mercy and great love and immeasurable grace saves sinners. Some scholars suggest that verses 4-10 through 10 is a sort of, uh, sort of hymn celebrating the glories of salvation. And, and that hymn is interrupted twice in verse 5 and in verse 8 by the liturgical acclamation, By grace you have been saved. The word that Paul uses here that we translate saved, it emphasizes the abiding reality of God's saving act. The abiding reality of God's saving act. God has acted in history to save sinners. And God still acts in history today to save sinners. And here Paul tells us why God saves sinners. Why God saves sinners. God is rich in mercy. God saves sinners because of His great love. And God saves sinners to display His immeasurable grace. His rich mercy means we do not get what we deserve. Condemnation. His great love sets us free from our sinful slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil. His immeasurable grace gives us what we do not deserve. Salvation, redemption, and eternal life. God's rich mercy means we do not get what we deserve. So in verse 3... We are condemned in sin. That is what we deserve. But in verse 4, Paul tells us that God is rich in mercy. By nature we are children of wrath and deserve condemnation. But God, being rich in mercy, exercises what Paul calls in Romans 3, divine forbearance. God passes over our sin. He holds back His wrath. And He has held back His wrath from the first sin in the garden to your last sin even today. Because He is rich in mercy. The godly Puritan Richard Sibbs once wrote, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. God is rich in mercy. God's great love sets us free from our sinful slavery. His great love sets us free from our sinful slavery. God's great love compels Him to act, to rescue. And so here, uh, this 
verse and phrase here parallels John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that anyone who would turn from their sins and trust in Him will not perish in their sin, but have everlasting life. While this phrase here in Ephesians chapter 2 is a parallel to John 3.16, the phrase great love only appears here in the Bible. That phrase together, great love, is unique. Because God's love is uniquely great. It's vast, unmeasured, and boundless for those He saves. His great love is vast. It's boundless. It's unmeasured for those He saves. Brothers and sisters, your God has great love for you. So great is His love for you that even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, the Father sent forth His Son, the Lord Jesus, to set you free from the curse of your sin. And beloved, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. God is rich in mercy, not giving us what we deserve. God has a great love for His people, setting us free from slavery to sin. And God displays His immeasurable grace toward us by giving us what we do not deserve. God displays His immeasurable grace toward us by giving us what we do not deserve. For by grace you have been saved, Paul tells us, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Well, here we should understand the it. It is the gift of God as being inclusive of all elements of salvation, including the faith necessary for your salvation. Salvation from first to last is the gift of God's immeasurable grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's why no one may boast. Because we have done nothing to merit such immeasurable grace from God. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 4, What do you have that you did not receive? The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1.3, God gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He gives you all things. It is a gift from God. How kind is God to display His immeasurable grace towards sinners. Brothers and sisters, what do you have that is not a gift of God's immeasurable grace? It might be helpful for us to imagine a courtroom. Imagine a courtroom on the day of sentencing of a guilty criminal, perhaps a murderer of the first degree. And in that courtroom, the judge declares that the murderer may go free, giving him what he, not giving him what he deserves. That's God's rich mercy. And then the judge says, as he steps down from the bench, that he will take the place of that criminal. And he sentences, sentences himself to death. That's God's great love. 
Then, as the judge is being handcuffed and marched out of the courtroom, he stops and he turns to you, the guilty criminal. Then he says, here is my robe. All that is mine, all the privileges, privileges I have is now yours. That is God's immeasurable grace. And friends, that is exactly what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is the clearest revelation of the rich mercy and great love and immeasurable grace of God. In God's rich mercy, Jesus Christ was sacrificed so that God may pass over your sin. In God's great love, Jesus Christ bore the yoke of sin. In our place condemned he stood, and he sets you free from the curse of your sin. By God's immeasurable grace, Jesus Christ robes you in his righteousness and grants to you eternal life. This is what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And it is only in Christ, through faith, that you can experience the benefits of Christ's work. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, friend, hear me say this to you. Flee from your sin and flee to Jesus Christ. Friends, see the rich mercy and the great love and the immeasurable grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Be found in Christ today and secure in Christ for eternity. God's rich mercy, His great love, and His immeasurable grace is made known to us in Jesus Christ. We have access to God's rich mercy and great love and immeasurable grace only in Jesus Christ. It is our union to Jesus Christ by God's grace and through faith that saves us from being dead in sin, being enslaved in sin, and being condemned in sin. It is in Christ alone our redemption is accomplished. And Paul, here in Ephesians 2, goes on to tell us what benefits are ours in Christ. What benefits are ours in Christ? Here Paul describes salvation as being made alive in Christ. Being made alive in Christ. Salvation is being exalted in Christ. And salvation is being created in Christ. Made alive in Christ, exalted in Christ, and created in Christ. The natural man is dead in sin, but by God's grace, Christians are made alive in Christ. Here, Paul alludes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and don't miss it, our resurrection in Him. In Christ, we are spiritually resurrected from the dead. Where we once were alienated from the life of God, we are now partakers of the divine life. Christ dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit, willing and working for God's glory to make us more like Jesus Christ. In Christ, our dead souls are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christians are already spiritually made alive in Christ, and yet our bodies may, if the Lord tarries, lie in the grave we are not yet fully made 
fully made alive in Christ. But as sure as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, beloved, he will raise you up on that day. You will have a body like unto his glorious resurrection body. And we will be with the Lord forever. So do not fear death, beloved. For God has made you alive in Christ. The natural man is enslaved in sin, in a lowly estate with Satan as his master. But by God's grace, Christians are exalted in Christ. Those in Christ are raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Here we have an allusion to Christ's ascension in Acts chapter 1 and his heavenly session in the Gospels and in Ephesians 1 and elsewhere in the New Testament where Christ is said to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's his heavenly session. Just as we have been resurrected in Christ, made alive in him, Paul says that we, Christians, have been exalted in him. We have been exalted with him in his ascension and in his session. The sense here is really twofold. That our citizenship is in heaven. We are pilgrims in this world. And that we have the heavenly resources to fight against sin, to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our citizenship is in heaven, for we have been raised and seated in Christ. So we seek the things that are above, where Christ dwells. He is our treasure, so our heart is with him rather than worldly prophets. We love him, so we seek to please him in this world rather than seeking worldly pleasure. And our position is secure in him so we can forsake selfish ambition for worldly position. Even more, when Christ ascended, the Holy Spirit descended. When Christ sat down, the Holy Spirit filled us up. And as he rules from his heavenly throne, so we partake in that divine power through the Holy Spirit God's great love has set us free in Christ and broken the power of sin in us. Satan has been vanquished and sin no longer reigns in the Christian, but we reign in Christ by the Spirit over sin. So Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Christ has set us free from sin. Therefore, stand firm. And do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. We have been exalted in Christ, brothers and sisters. So we have the power to stand firm against the world and the flesh and the devil. So if I might, with great reverence, if I might paraphrase the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter 3. Since you have the power of Christ in you, by his Spirit, beloved, put to death, therefore, what is worldly and sinful in you, sexual immorality, impurity, wicked passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming against sin. In these, beloved, you too once walked when you were living in sin. 
But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have been set free from the slavery of sin with its practices and have been exalted in Christ. The natural man is condemned in sin, but by God's grace, the Christian is created in Christ. The sense here is that our condemnation in sin is certain. God will condemn sin. We will surely, in our sin, be punished under the wrath of God. But, in Christ, we are surely recreated. We are surely redeemed from our condemnation, not to bear the just punishment due our sin, but in Christ, to bear good works in keeping with repentance. These good works of the redeemed are so certain that Paul describes the works as prepared beforehand, in eternity by God, that God's plan from eternity was to redeem, is to redeem a people in Christ who would pass from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from condemnation to new creation, so that we might bear good works to the glory of God. And it, of course, raises the question what good works Paul has in mind. It may not be the good works that we have in mind. I think that Paul's referring to rather mundane good works. Summarized generally in the two great commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And perhaps summarized more specifically and plainly in the Ten Commandments, do the good work of loving God in these ways. In Christ, Have no other God. In Christ, put to death your idolatry. In Christ, you have the name that is above every name, so do not profane the name of Christ. In Christ, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And we should do the good work of loving people in these ways. In Christ, honor your father and your mother. In Christ, You must not commit murder, even anger toward another. In Christ, you must not commit adultery, even lust in your heart. In Christ, don't steal. In Christ, don't lie. In Christ, don't covet. Brothers and sisters, surely there are great questions about what obedience might look like in any given circumstance as we apply the commands of Scripture. But let us be about the good work of simple obedience to God by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. And at least, at least one other way that we can love God, I'm sure that there are others, love God and love others, is by the good work of the Great Commission. We can glorify God in heaven and love our neighbor best by making them a disciple by telling them the bad news about their sin and by telling them the good news that God is rich in mercy. He's great in love. He's immeasurable in grace. And he sent forth the Lord Jesus Christ to be made sin for you 
and for me. What confidence we can have that our good works will be pleasing to the Lord, for He prepared them beforehand. He has plainly set forth His commands. And He's done it so that we would walk in them in Christ. Beloved, you are alive in Christ. You are exalted in Christ. And you are created for good works in Christ. Well, we should conclude. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, tells the story of redemption. All humanity is by nature in sin. But God, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loves his people and to display the immeasurable grace, his immeasurable grace saves sinners in Jesus Christ. You know, these verses remind me of something John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, once said. John Newton, as he was growing old in age and as his eyesight was leaving him, he made the comment that although my memory is fading, these two things I remember very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, we confess it is not easy to be confronted with our sinful estate apart from you. The weight of the guilt of our sin weighs us down. You are a God who is holy and righteous and just, and you will judge sin. We can praise you for your wrath against evil, for we know that your judgments are true and constant. You do not change. And that can bring us comfort. But only in knowing, God, that you are also rich in mercy and great in love and immeasurable in grace towards all who are in Jesus Christ. What a privilege to be in Christ, to be joined in him in his resurrection and ascension and holy session before your throne. We confess this morning, great is the mystery of godliness. We are humbled before you, O God, knowing that you have prepared beforehand for these things to come to pass. And so we plead the mercy and the love and the grace grace that is found in Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his holy and precious name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.